I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you you create real prospects. Hello, this is Chad Chancellor with Next Move Group. Before we begin today's podcast, if you've been enjoying our podcast series, please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That'll sure help us out. We'd appreciate it a whole lot. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Next Move Group We Are Jobs podcast. This is Chad Chancellor, co-founder of Next Move Group. And today, as we start the new year, we're doing a simulcast with Research Uncensored, which is Research FDI's podcast. Y'all know I think Research FDI is the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. They have been part of our show in the past several times. They've been a sponsor of our show. We do some work with them, so we're just tickled to death to have them. So we got Bruce Takeoffman here with us today, who's the president and founder. We got Amber Hunter, who's the vice president of business development of North America for Research FDI. We also got Alex Metzger, who's the co-founder of Next Move Group. So we got all four of us here with us today. We're going to look back at 2020 and we're going to look ahead to 2021. We're really looking forward to kicking our new year off the right way. Welcome to another episode of Research Uncensored and and the We Are Jobs podcast by Next Move Group. Yes, you're hearing correctly. Do not adjust your audio devices. We are combining two podcasts into one. We're simulcasting the first podcast of 2021. Yeah, Bruce, we're excited about this. You all have sponsored our podcast since the start, and we sponsored your podcast. You all came along and started one, and so I've been following it and know it's doing well. And so I can't think of a better way to start the new year than combining our two for this simulcast since we both do business together and share a lot of clients. Absolutely. I think our clients will definitely get more bang for their buck with this episode. Why not uh, do one together? So how about we start it off and talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, uh, for some trends in 2021? Yeah, well, as far as economic development is concerned, you know, there's all this talk right now about reshoring. So I've got two trends that I'm seeing. Well, one it hasn't really become a trend yet, but it's going to. Reshoring is the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about it in economic development. And I think what I'm seeing realistically is we're not going to see thousands of jobs come back at one time, particularly from China, especially from the big companies, the big corporate Fortune 100 companies. We're just not going to see a lot of that. I think what you're going to see is slowly but surely you're going to see manufacturing come back because I think your small to mid-sized manufacturers in the U.S. have got a real supply chain risk right now. 
And so they're going to have to find U.S. suppliers who can help them out if we ever have this happen again. And I don't think any of us have any confidence it won't happen again. We're seeing a lot of small to mid-sized manufacturers with a real supply chain problem. And so I think what's going to happen is you're going to see 10 and 20 jobs at a time come back from overseas, and it's going to take 10 years to do it. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think suddenly Congress is going to pass any package and all of a sudden all these jobs are back. But I certainly think that what has happened is going to open manufacturers' eyes to a simple risk analysis that not having redundant backup supply close to us is going to just not be acceptable. So I'm already seeing manufacturers do some small contracts with other American manufacturers just to give them redundancy in the case that they have. And of course, I've got Alex here with us today. Bruce, I know you've got Amber with you. So let me see if Alex has got any different opinions on that. No, I'm in agreement there. I do think, I know we're recording this the first week. It's going to be interesting to see how the Senate election goes out. I do think that will have some effect on it. I know they're voting in Georgia as we're recording this. So that may have some effect on the national policy as far as reshoring is and and how our international policies go. So may know more by the end of the week or in a couple of weeks, but I'm definitely in agreement that it's not going to be a quick response as far as reshoring, but something that's, that's definitely drug out over the next year or two, over the next decade. And I'll tell you a problem coming for economic developers, whether they know it or not, and I think they're starting to figure it out, is the whole incentives compliance game with work from home. I don't think work from home is going to stay. I think if tomorrow, a vaccine was given to every one of us and the virus was gone. I don't think that you're going to see all the white collar workers flock back into their downtown buildings and work as they used to, even in their plants. When you win a 200 job manufacturing plant, you'll have 40 white collar workers. I think working from home is here to stay. There was already a trend going that way. And this in the States is going to create a real problem because if you just take where I live in New Orleans, within 20 miles of New Orleans, you have got probably four different counties. We call them parishes in Louisiana, but everybody else calls them counties. You got four different counties. You got another state. You got Mississippi. Where Alex is in St. Louis, across the river is Illinois. And so for years, people have lived in Illinois and drove into Missouri to work in St. Louis. Or they may have lived in St. Charles County and drove into St. Louis. Well, now they're going to be working from their house which is going to change totally where their tax returns go. It's going to change where the revenue comes to. We just hired an employee ourselves. She's based in Jackson, Mississippi. She's probably going to end up in New Orleans, but obviously in the pandemic, she's not doing anything right now. All her taxes go to Mississippi, not Louisiana. And so I think you're going to see major league. Think about Lake Charles, Louisiana. They're beside Texas. They're going to have half their people that work in their offices, living literally in Texas, working in Texas, who used to be Louisiana residents, and vice versa. Texas will get people from Louisiana. So this will all shake out in reality. But when it comes down to incentives, compliance, and did a company hire as many as they said, and where I'm based, do they live in Orleans Parish or Jefferson Parish or St. Bernard Parish? Who's getting the money? It's going to be a huge problem, especially state legislatures are going to have to figure out. And local economic development counties and parishes are going to have to figure out just in terms of how are we going to handle if the company hired how many they said, but some of them are physically working from home and that's where their paychecks go. I'm glad you brought up the uh, work from home theme. And that's the trend I'm seeing in 2021. Started last year, obviously. We're actually seeing communities and states offering incentives for the first time to attract workers to work from home as long as they hire from within their community. So 
in the past, when you go after, say, an IT, you were talking mostly about manufacturing positions, but when you look recruit for IT software, often states would look for the brick and mortar facility to house those workers in a central place. Now we're seeing a trend where that workforce could work remotely and they're still going ahead and giving incentives in some situations. So I'm anticipating this to still be a trend in 2021. And I'm wondering if it's going to remain a trend in 2022. I think so. Cause I mean, people were already starting to work from home. Commercial office space was already under attack. And if you go in the office that we have in new Orleans, it's like a ghost town. There's nobody in there. Just our company. We just hired somebody a year ago. I would have never dreamed of hiring somebody and not requiring them to move to one of our locations so we could train in person. But we just did, and I'm totally fine with it. But in doing so, our employee lives in Mississippi. So all her income taxes will go to Mississippi, not Louisiana. Again, that'll probably shake out because Mississippi will have people who live in Louisiana and vice versa. So really, it may not make a difference revenue-wise to a lot of the states, but economic developers are really going to have to figure out how they're going to handle compliance if that company hired a bunch of people especially if they're in any kind of uh, office type job. Obviously, if you're a manufacturing worker, you got to go in the plant. But even when you land a manufacturing plant, you end up with 30 or 40 back office, white collar workers who very well may be working in a different county and working there, not just living there. So that's where their tax returns going to go. So it's going to have to be something that's really looked at. What do you all predict as far as 2021 on the economic development horizon? Well, you know, we've discussed the attraction on the IT and software side. Looking back last year, you know, we saw that, you know, a lot of economic development organizations switched to, you know, virtual recruitment to go ahead and still target by industry, but kind of look all around the world. So, Amber, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on the 2021? I know you want to chime in. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. Tad mentioned that we're always hearing about this constant, you know, narrative about potential reshoring and nearshoring projects. And while I definitely agree that there's not going to be a sort of mass exodus of, you know, new jobs cropping up from China within the U.S., but I think that this is definitely a year where economic developers can start getting their ducks in a row. Over the past few months, our firm has gotten an onslaught of requests for competitiveness studies so they can kind of evaluate their region and see where they stand as a place for manufacturing. You know, we are building databases for economic developers to have these conversations with large multinationals that are based in their region and, you know, manufacture offshore. So I think for this year, you know, on the research front, I think this will be a big year. I think we'll see a lot more requests to start getting these types of studies done so that when the trend eventually falls and jobs start to come back, that, you know, regions will be in a position to really start competing and know where they stand, you know, amongst their other areas that they'll be competing for those projects. I totally agree. I think probably 2022 is going to be the best time ever to be an economic developer because every business right now is thinking about how many square feet do we need, whether it's a warehouse or whether it's an office. Do we need them at home? Do we need them in different locations? Do we need a whole new supply chain? Literally, do we need to redo our whole supply chain? And so as that all happens, they're going to be all kind of projects and they're probably going to look different than they have in the past. And so obviously none of us know when all this is going to be over. So I think if I were an economic developer, I would use at least the first half of this year to get all my research ready and ducks in a row. Because I think when this picket turns on, it's going to come like a fire hydrant spewing water at you. Absolutely. And on that front, do you guys have any new products or services that are coming out in 2021 or that have sort of evolved as you see this need and, you know, a request for more strategy-based work and things of that nature? 
Well, I know one thing that we have uh, kind of growing into uh, at the end of last year and definitely this year as a growth area is we are starting to do executive searches for manufacturing companies. So a lot of the white collar IT people, as you all referring to, any kind of back office support, warehouse managers, right now we're looking for a sales director. So if you have, you know, manufacturing companies in your town that are having trouble recruiting these type positions, we're kind of getting into that executive search space and have a couple on the market right now. So that's definitely going to be our biggest growth opportunity in the, in the next year, I foresee. Well, and I tell you, a lot of manufacturers in rural America particularly, I mean, they can have large plants, 300 job plants. They have a hard time figuring out where to go get their managerial level talent. So not their CEO, not necessarily their CFO, but their division director, you know, their supply chain director or executive or manager their sales manager, their IT person. They really have a hard time doing that. And so we have grown into this and we're just excited as we can be over it because we know how to find those people. You all know we did economic development executive searches. We've done a bunch of them and over time that's grown. We've now done schools, we've done ports, we've done chambers of commerce, you name it. We've done it on that regard. So we're really excited to grow that over to the manufacturing space. And I guarantee you the economic developers listening to this as they do their BRE visits, if they're in rural, particularly, they're going to hear a lot of times people say, I'm having a hard time hiring my white collar managers. And, you know, I don't know where to go get them. Because what we hear in rural America is they say all our smart kids end up leaving and they don't ever come back home. And so a lot of the manufacturing plants there don't know how to source that talent. And that's something that we know how to do. So we're real excited to grow into that. You know, we launched the movement last year, which is designed to really provide training for economic developers on really uh, several different things. One is understanding their supply chain. So we can reshore these jobs, even if it's five or 10 at a time. One's about landing more deals, and then one's about helping their careers as we do these executive searches. And so we're real excited with that. That thing has probably done three times what we thought it would, and we come out with new content every week. And so as we start this year, it's not really a new product for us, but we'll have 52 new pieces of content by this time next year. And our members now are telling us the content they want, which is really cool. Our best seller so far in the movement has been a board training video, and we never had the idea to do it. And one of our members said, I need a video on board training, and we did it, and we sell three or four of those a week. And so now we've learned instead of us telling our members watch this video, we're listening to them. They tell us what they want, and we get it out there. So what about you guys? Are y'all coming up with any new products this year? Well, to harken back to talking about, you know, the new requests we're getting for strategies, we've definitely seen that a lot of our clients are kind of taking this time to sort of redesign the foundation that they had. A lot of that is because some of their priority sectors that they were targeting for investment attraction has now had to be, you know, reanalyzed. Because of the pandemic, some sectors were hit harder than most and some recruitment initiatives, just it's not the right time. So we're kind of looking at their sectors and reevaluating for them. You know, we're building out uh, marketing plans focused on investment attraction. So best strategies, which regions, which cities, whether they should use webinar planning and promotion. We're also been offering virtual training to assist with lead generation for any, you know, firms that want to start doing it themselves, helping them build databases to find, you know, these qualified companies that are growing. 
as well as building those benchmarking studies so that they start to have that collateral to see how they fare against their competing regions and have sector specific material to share to investors, whether foreign investors or domestic. Bruce, I know you'd probably love to talk a little bit about our expanding uh, reps in the European market as well. Yeah, absolutely, Amber. But to back up a little bit, you know, um, talking about working from home and virtual recruitment, we had so many of these requests, as Amber mentions, developing strategies, FDI strategies. So we wanted to find someone around the world to lead this division. We received maybe 500 CVs and we settled on one, a gentleman in Berlin, uh, Dr. Andre Schluter. Uh, he used to work for Accenture. Now he's going to head up our strategy and benchmarking division uh, and he's going to lead, become our chief economist. So we're excited to have Dr. Schluter on the team to head this division up. So uh, we're excited about that. In terms of European reps, you know, now we'll have people situated uh, full-time in the UK, Spain, France, the Netherlands, and we're excited to cover the world. We do have a presence in South America as well and across the U.S. We're excited. We're pumped about 2021. And yeah, it's just unbelievable. People are we're setting the foundation and I think this year, this year and last year. And like you said, I think 2022 will be an exciting time. Well, I know we've spent a lot of this podcast talking about the future of 2021 and what it may bring, but let's do a little recap of 2020. So I know it was definitely a different year than anyone that we've had before, but what would you all say was your kind of your best moment of 2020. What's a great thing that happened to your all's business over the last 12 months? I want to share a story. I've never told anyone the story before publicly. Only our executive vice president of operations, Davor, knows this. So on March 11th in my office, I actually cried. I literally cried like a baby. He was holding me. It was very tender, emotional. <laughs> I can picture that. I can picture <laughs> just as well as you're sitting here. Yes, yes. I didn't know if our business model could sustain because a lot of our business model was before face-to-face -face meetings, trade show meetings. That was 90% of our revenue. So how are we going to sustain it? How are we going to pay 40 mouths? We have 40 mouths to feed. So how are we really going to do it? So I think the best moment, Alex, to answer your question, the best moment was our ability to pivot. We immediately created the virtual industry sweep. So immediately we had to get our clients on board. So we explained you know, how lead generation was going to work. Uh, it was going to happen virtually. We were going to target companies around the world. And I would say about 90, 91% of our clients bought in. Of course, some maybe canceled their contract or delayed it to 2021. But those who stayed on rewarded. Before it would take us 14 hours to find a lead, but now it might take us 22, 23 hours to find ones. But the ones that did stay on were rewarded. So I think the best moment of 2020 was to show our resilience, our firm's ability. Hey, we're not together physically, but we're together virtually. I think our resilience and ability to succeed despite the conditions. What would you guys say is your best moment of 2020? Well, I know one of the things that Chad and I have been arguing about really since we started this company was I've always been a big Zoom guy far before the pandemic. He was talking about this Zoom when nobody ever heard of it. And now it's like a vocabulary. We all talk about it. I hope He's you invested been... in it. <laughs> no, 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 I wish we smart. had. He, he's been talking <laughs> about Zoom for like five years. <laughs> One of the things, as you all know, being business owners, you're on the road a lot. I mean, there was months I was on the road 20, 22 days. Chad's a big in-person meeting guy. You know, he believes a 15-minute meeting is worth driving 10 hours for, even if it could be handled over the phone. He just is born that you have in-person meetings. And I'd always argue that, you know, not only would our quality of lives be better, but, you know, our expenses would be down and we'd be a lot more productive using some of these online resources. So I think, you know, everybody's used to the trend of Zoom and Google Meetups and all the different products that are out there now. But I definitely think there's going to be a trend in the future where this becomes the new norm. I don't think it's going to go back to in-person meetings. So although not directly affecting our business, definitely our quality of lives are, are going to be better spending less time on the road, less time in the car. And as it becomes more common base to have, you know, your typical 30 minute meeting online as opposed to in person. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. We'll be right back with a lot more with Alex, Bruce, and Amber right after this. I want to thank LocationOne.com. Some of you know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. In my opinion, Lois is the best buildings and sites database on the market. One of the reasons I think that is it gives you nationwide exposure. So I used to be the economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, and I made a terrible mistake. I only put my buildings and sites on the Kentucky Economic Development Buildings and Sites database. Well, Paducah bordered Illinois and was within 30 or so miles of Missouri, Indiana, and Tennessee. So what sense did it make for me to not put my bills and sites on a nationwide database? Well, Lois does that for you. Looking back, I should have put my bills and sites on Lois. It's also easy to use for an economic developer. It's just like using Facebook. It walks you through how to insert your pictures and your information and so forth. And the thing I like most, it works well on my iPad. If I'm in an industrial building, I want to be able to look at that thing on my iPad. Lois does that for me. Other builders and sites databases struggle with that. So if you got 10 or 15 minutes to spare, go over to location1.com book yourself a demo and see if this can help your community have more success yeah and so i agree with him i'm going to argue back a little we argue a lot the public just don't usually see it but our staff does so they'll get tickled i do think obviously now we're going to do more virtual than ever it's probably helped our executive search business because now we can Zoom with candidates till we get it down to the last two or three. We're used to, if we had six or seven we liked, we had to haul them all to town. You know, now that's not considered the thing to do. But he's right. I read a book years ago called Never Eat Alone. And it was a lot about the power of face-to-face communication. And so he's right. If I thought I could close a deal, even if it was a little deal and it took me driving all night, 20 hours, that's what I was going to go do. And I just, I, I would have never considered saying, let's just zoom over that. And this has forced us to do that. So we had our best year ever because we had our best revenue year ever. And expense wise, we didn't travel. I, we used to travel all the time. And, you know, usually when you're traveling for clients, they'll end up paying at travel. But when you're prospecting, you're paying at travel yourself. So this has certainly helped us with that. But I will say, I think that the communities who are still going to do in-person meetings are going to have more success because there's going to be less people doing them. And so I'm not saying do it while it's not safe or anything like that. But me, I always kind of want to do the opposite of everybody else. And so if everybody's going virtual, if I'm an economic developer, I might tell Bruce, Bruce, I want in-person meetings because if there's just less people out there doing it. You know, obviously once it's safe, and I think when we can go back to having conferences, I think everybody's going to flock to the conference because it's been so long, you know, since all the economic developers have seen each other. But I think the first big conference where everybody can safely go is going to be a blowout. Everybody's going to show up. So I don't think that uh, in-person meetings by any stretch is gone forever. But I do think that for us, where it's going to help our business is once we get a sale, a signed contract, I think we're going to be able to do a lot of our meetings that we used to do in person by way of Zoom and Internet and whatnot, because we've already got the contract side. I still am not comfortable myself doing the entire sales process without meeting somebody. Luckily, we've grown our business enough. You know, when you first start your business, you'll take any client you can get. We're getting to the point now where once in a while I'll see a client and say, you know, I don't want this deal. I don't want to do business with it. And that still goes back to face-to-face. So I think as far as the sales process is concerned, 
as soon as it's safe, there will still be a demand for face-to-face. It may not be what it was, but I think the people who follow that are going to be greatly rewarded. What do you think the bar tabs are going to be like in the first <laughs> economic development conference back? That depends if you're there, Bruce, or, or who's, who's in attendance. <laughs> I'm going to make Chuck Sexton bring bourbon from Kentucky. But, Bruce, I do want to compliment y'all because we have a mutual client. I won't say who they are, but uh, you all have been helping them out, and they have gotten some good results from it through the pandemic. And so I know y'all got multiple clients. You know, I don't know them all, but the ones that I do know have had good success. So the pivot that y'all have taken, you've still been able to deliver high-quality results to your clients. Yeah, thank you. If I compliment you as well, seeing all the executive searches uh, come in, I guess people still want to go ahead and make their next move, no pun intended, despite the pandemic, you know, movement is still happening. So what are you seeing kind of on the executive search level? Are you seeing uh, a lot of people moving around? Are people dissatisfied because of the pandemic? What kind of trends are you seeing there? Yeah, we're seeing that now. Right at first, you know, like you, in March, April, and May, we signed no executive searches, I don't think. But probably... October, it's just like the faucet turned on. And I actually kind of predicted that to our staff. I told them, I said, when this turns on, it's going to turn off. And so now we're doing so many I can't count. And interestingly, we're doing a lot of vice presidents of economic development. So not necessarily the top position, but the number two person. And so you're seeing a lot of movement in that area. And I think you're going to continue seeing that as those people have opportunities to go make more money do other things. And now more economic developers are actually outsourcing, hiring that VP person instead of doing it themselves because it's just so much work in executive search firm. We cast a wider net. So we're seeing a lot of that and our business has grown into these other sectors. So we're doing a whole bunch of those executive searches now, but we're as active with that now, not only in clients, we probably not at our record one time, I guess two years ago, I think we were doing like 20 searches at once. Right now, we're probably doing 10, which I'm tickled with over the holidays because usually things slow down over the holidays. But on top of that, we got proposals out all over the place. So I think we're about to land some more. So that part of the business, if anything, is a huge growth opportunity for us. And we get to spend less money now because you get to do a lot of your process over Zoom. You don't have to bring in every candidate that they're interested in for an in-person visit until you know they're highly serious. So guys, what advice would you give economic developers that are looking to make a transition kind of in the middle of this pandemic? Well, not only in a pandemic, but one of the advice I give to economic developers in general is about the opportunity to interview. You know, you see it so much when you're sitting down with these search committees and hearing these candidates interview is that interviewing is a skill. It is a skill set that the more you practice it, the better at it you are. And I tell economic developers all the time that no matter what the opportunity is, whether it's a job that you're not sure if you're going to take, whether it's doing something in front of the news media, the more you can be in front of a camera, the more you can be interviewed, always take the opportunity because sometimes the best economic developers aren't the ones that get hired. It's 95% of the time, not their resume or not their wins. It's how well they interview when you get down to the final stages. So I've seen people who are just amazing in interviewing and it's a skill and you can tell they've done it before. So I always tell people that when you have the opportunity, it's just like, just like going to the practice range, you know, work on your golf game. You've got to be out there practicing as much as possible, and then it becomes second nature for you. And advice I would give to the younger generation, which I'm about to be 39, so younger than me, let's just say. I'm seeing too many, if I could just be candid without talking about any one person. It's just the whole generation. I'm seeing too many of the young economic developers are telling us, that they don't want to apply for a job because it's not their absolute perfect fit. 
And I'm talking about we'd be doing jobs that pay two hundred thousand, one fifty, and I'll know good and well they're not making more than seventy five where they are, and they would have a chance to go double their income. And I'm just seeing that all over. And I understand, you know, you don't want to take a job you don't want, but I can tell you, and I think Alex would agree, and probably y'all would agree, we own our own business. So we literally have the job we want, and that's not even perfect. There are things we have to do. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect job. And I don't know if our younger generation's been schooled this way or what's got it in their mind, but it seems to me that the folks younger than like 36, they won't even apply for a $200,000 job if it doesn't check all 20 boxes. If it checks 19 boxes out of 20, they don't even want to apply, much less get in it and running, you know. And I think they're making a terrible mistake. Every job I ever took wasn't perfect. And all of them ended up helping me. And like I said, two weeks ago, Brandon and I on our team are running all around New Orleans in a pandemic trying to get a form notarized for the government on some e-verify certification thing for something we did and had to have it notarized that day. And none of the notaries were open. And we're running around in a pandemic getting coughed on and everything. There's no perfect job. Even when you own your own business, there's no perfect job. So for the younger economic developers, I would really think about long-term, where do I want to be? And maybe if I don't get that one right out of the gate, is there one I can take that can get me that? Exactly. There's no perfect community in economic development, whether it's uh, board members or, you know, there's going to be a flaw with every single job. So you're better suited to go on and put your name in the hat and interview and take the opportunity as opposed to sitting back and, and waiting for the one job in America that you want. Absolutely. And that actually makes me think of a question because I know, Alex and Chad, you both, before you were entrepreneurs and business owners, you both worked in economic development. Can you maybe talk to what that transition is like? Say there are any EDOs that are listening and thinking about starting their own business. Can you kind of give them a peek into what that looked like? Now, see, I never did economic development in a metro area. I did as a project manager in Mobile, Alabama. But as far as being the CEO, I was always in rural places. If you can truly do rural economic development, if you can convince multiple companies, I was always a manufacturing person, but some towns want other things. But if you can convince multiple companies to put a substantial location in a small town, to me, that's the hardest job. Before I, we started Next Move Group, I did economic development in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, and Paducah, Kentucky. And I can tell you those jobs were much harder than running Next Move Group. Now, next move group requires patience. You don't jump out the first year and set the world on fire. It takes a while. But I have all the respect in the world for our economic developers, especially those in suburban and rural towns, because that was the hardest job I ever had. And so for any out there in those places, if you've truly had success, and I mean, you know if you've had success or not, then rest assured you've got what it takes to probably be successful in business. Now then, you know, obviously your business challenges are really totally different. At first, it's all around sales and marketing. And a lot of economic developers I find are comfortable with the marketing, but not comfortable with sales. And in business, you've got to get your mind around being comfortable with sales. But I'm telling you, if you can sell a manufacturer to put a plant in a small town, you can sell whether you know you can or not. As far as the transition, you got to be good at sales and marketing especially out of the gate. And then as your business grows, like now we just hired two new employees. Now we're way more focused on building processes and all that kind of stuff, which quite frankly, I'm not real good at because I am good at sales and marketing and most sales and marketing people aren't good at processes. So now our challenge is no longer really the marketing and sales. It is 
how do we build a machine and processes to do this? And so we're becoming much more CEOs and business owners now than economic developers. The growth of y'all's strategy division over the past year has been really impressive. What do y'all think has attributed to that? You know, I think we've touched on it that, you know, the pandemic for a lot of economic developers really had to, you know, put a pause on their recruitment activities. So many, as you said, were, you know, kind of road warriors, the term we've typically used. And now sitting down and trying to refocus that recruitment strategy has made them come to us and say, hey, we want to do a deep dive and look into this industry. We want to build analyses. We want to know how to target this, what our messaging is going to look like. And from there, where we hired Dr. Andre Schluter as Bruce mentioned previously, our team has now grown to a business intelligence strategy team of six people, and they can handle anywhere between, you know, 20 to 30 projects. And it's just continuously growing. You know, our internal team, we're now developing talent that we already have to help build, to add to our strategy division. We've had a lot of work the past few months with clients asking for, you know, building out new collateral, new brochures that are all sector and regional specific. And we've seen, you know, our database, FDI365, kind of explode because clients now have the time to really look through that data, you know, create those initial templates to reach out to these targets that we've uncovered that have shown, you know, indicators of growth. And so I think, you know, that sort of, if you want to call it downtime, though, for economic developers working in investment attraction, not those that were in BR&E, because we know that they were, you know, beyond busy when all this occurred, trying to take care of all of their communities. I think that's really what sparked the growth for us in that division. All right, we're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners. We'll be right back with a lot more with Alex, Bruce, and Amber right after this. In June of 2020, Next Move Group launched a new initiative called The Movement, and we already have more than 100 economic developers as part of our movement. The movement was really built to help improve the quality of lives of economic developers. It helps economic developers land more deals, helps them get along better with their board and elected officials, helps them deal with the media, even helps them learn how to build their resume if they want to look for a new job. So thank you to our first 100 members, and if you want to join the movement, go to the nextmovegroup.com backslash movement to learn more. I'm glad you said that because I want to give some advice to economic developers. And this advice is more practical than technical, and it comes from our executive search business. But what Amber said, I want all the economic developers to listen to. We all know as economic development professionals that BRE is 80% of your job, and it's of 80% importance. But I read an article, I can't remember if it was in Air Development or where, a week or two ago, of a consultant, I won't say who it was, who actually put in this article that all economic development organizations for the next year should sink all their money into BRE and zero into marketing and recruiting. And let me tell you right now, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. We do executive searches for economic developers. And as we do that, we meet mayors and we meet board members and we meet all these people. And what they tell us that they want their economic developer to do is recruit. That's what they tell us. Now, we all know that in reality, you probably should do 80% BRE, especially now. But for God's sakes, don't run out and tell everybody we're doing no recruiting for the next year. We're doing no marketing for the next year. That is the quickest way to get your organization defunded or get you fired. It's the quickest way. Before long, you'll have your city who gives you 100000 saying, well, if they're not going to do any recruiting, our budget's in trouble. We'll just cut them. 
It is absolutely the dumbest thing people can say. I don't tell you what consultant tells you this. Call me. For every 100 searches we do, 98 of them tell us they want a recruiter. They want somebody recruiting. And now every night on the news you're seeing companies, California going to Texas, New York going to Florida, this and that and the other. As board members see that, they're going to want you recruiting. They're going to expect you to do that. So what I tell economic developers is, even if you think in your mind this year you should do 90% BRE, you very well may be right. Don't say that. Don't get in the news and say that. You will get yourself defunded. And I'm talking to several economic development organizations who are having funding problems. And what your funders want you to do, whether they tell you or not, because they tell us when we do these searches, and we've done these searches from Washington to Maine to Texas, they tell us we want our economic developer recruiting. So whatever you do, don't get rid of your recruiting and marketing budget. I don't care if Next Move Group doesn't get a penny of it. I'm telling you this from the bottom of my heart to help the economic development profession. So, Amber, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, Chad, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the equivalent would be having a football team and only choosing defensive players and having no offense whatsoever. I think that would be a huge mistake. I just don't see that being a you know, viable strategy. Of course, now BRE is going to be probably the most important thing you're going to do. But if you're going to completely close the tab on your offense, uh, I think that would be a huge mistake. Hey, as a Mississippi State fan, there's been many years we've had a great defense, couldn't score a point, and it's like watching paint dry. So, yeah, I agree with you. But, but as we do these searches, it kind of goes back to one of Amber's questions earlier. What advice can we give to people? You don't want to say in your interview, well, 80% of our job growth is going to come from existing industry, so I'm going to spend 80% of my time doing that, even though that may be proper. So, you know, it's kind of like a politician. <laughs> you know, you got to have talking points. I'm just telling you, what your funders want to hear, what your mayors want to hear, what your banks want to hear is recruiting. And so economic developer, I see them struggle with this question in the interviews all the time. And so as I saw that, and I believe this consultant was based in Texas, and I read this, it might not have been area development, it was one of those. And I thought to myself, the world's worst thing you could do right now in Texas is say we're not going to recruit. Because Texas people are turning on the TV every night, and in their minds, there are companies coming from California to Texas. Whether there's a lot of them or not, I don't know. But I'm telling you in their minds, that's what they're hearing. So if you said in Texas, well, we're just not going to market or recruit this year, you may never know it, and you could have some of your funding pulled out from under you. And so I totally, totally agree with that. Well, as we wind down, as we talk about the fact that you need to do marketing and lead generation, what are some of the best practices y'all have found to do virtual lead generation? Well, thanks for the question. I think my operations team is going to kill me by saying this. And it's going to add more labor cost to us. But here's what you need to do. I think, you know, when we were setting up meetings face-to-face, -face, you know, at the beginning, we're the ones arranging the qualified meetings. So we're not there in the room to often make the introduction. So at the beginning, it might be a little awkward about, you know, how did you find me? How did we meet? So in the virtual world, maybe have the lead generator stay on the call and make the introduction. Like, hey, John, you told me on the phone that you're considering a manufacturing assembly facility in one to two years requiring 100,000 square feet and these requirements. So in a way, it's good to have the lead generator spend five to 10 minutes recapping the conversation on the call and make the formal introduction between the CEO of the expanding company and the region. So I think that's a very important best practice, even though it does add, unfortunately, more labor costs to us. I think that's a very important best practice to come out of COVID. I also think really to have a development organization really hone in on what they're looking for in terms of subsector, in terms of what they want. Because now the world is our oyster. We can look wherever we want. So to really know 
you know, what you're good at and really focus your resources on, you know, basically what you're looking for. So I think having those two best practices in the back in your back pocket are more important than ever. I would just like to add, because for a lot of our clients, they're still kind of tackling these conference calls, these, you know, Zoom face-to-face meetings. They're tackling it as as a group. And sometimes, you know, at the beginning, we'd have six people on a call and and it, it was chaos. And so we start to kind of have to do sort of freebie trainings, if you will, where I said, listen, we have to create your typical pitch deck, but we can't make it more than 10 slides. We want to hear high level information, data that speaks to the sector you're talking to, and you need to decide who is the leader of that call. And if there are going to be questions, it has to be pre-organized. So you're not just going into a call blind. Obviously, at face-to-face, we all kind of know you can kind of wing it. You can read people's, you know, their body language and sort of know what they're thinking. It needs to be much more organized and the prepping takes kind of double the time. We have more time now because we are at home, but you got to utilize that to really come on that call prepared with a pitch deck that's not just your generalized tech, but that's tailored specifically to the conversation and, you know, the industry you'll be talking to. Yeah. And I can even see that with us. We probably kicked a few deals down the road that I messed up when the pandemic first hit. I'm especially thinking of a couple of executive searches are coming to mind. The executive search committee reached out to me and said, can we do a Zoom with you? You know, we're considering y'all, you know, to do our search. And I used to would just haul off to the town and do it in person and have my, and I could adjust on the fly, like you said. And so I would get on the call kind of thinking we were having a conversation and they would expect me to have a PowerPoint because it's hard to have a conversation with eight of them at a table. And I had several where I did not have my PowerPoint ready because I've just got a standard, you know, I would have pitched it for them. And we probably lost a couple of deals where I got on the call thinking, I'm just going to talk to these people. And the next thing I know, they want me to present. And I just wasn't prepared for that. And I actually made that mistake twice. You would think you'd make it once and learn, but I didn't. I made that mistake twice. And so now I'm going in with that in mind because you just don't know what to expect. You do have to prepare more as you go in. I totally agree. Well, Amber and Bruce, as we wind down, do you all have any other questions for us for our show? Just continue your excellence, my friends. We're looking forward to seeing you down the road. I'm really happy that we were able to do this joint simulcast, and I'm sure ratings will triple, if not quadruple, for sure. (laughs) And I can't wait for the first in-person conference, like you said. I think it's going to (laughs) be quite the event. It'll be a good time. It may be Mardi Gras next year. See, we would have Uh a Mardi Gras event, and Mardi Gras was early this year. It was February 16th, so we would be all getting ready for that right now. (laughs) Last time I went to New Orleans, I hardly made it out alive. (laughs) Early Mardi Gras are tough, because Mardi Gras Day this year is February 16th, and it's Y'all know if you've been here, you don't just celebrate Mardi Gras Day. And so I was thinking about that yesterday. Mardi Gras starts January 6th, basically. But it ramps up. When Mardi Gras is in late March, it really doesn't ramp up till late February. But these early February Mardi Gras, it would ramp up immediately. So we would have gone straight into, into Mardi Gras season. And, Bruce, I think our podcast is going to air before the NFL playoffs, but yours might not. But Alex and I wanted to know, you know, how you felt about the Giants missing the playoffs, you know, because of the Eagles' tremendous effort that come up just a little short the other night. Yeah, thanks a lot, Doug Peterson. Really appreciate your strong effort in that game. And, you know, for the Giants, 6-10 and 10 is a really good season these days. And, you know, we worked hard on that 6-10 and 10 record. you think that would be enough to win the NFC East this year. But thanks a lot for benching Jalen Hurst in the fourth quarter. We appreciate it. We have very long memories. So we look forward to seeing you week one in 2021. You had to be impressed with Joe Judge's response this morning or yesterday whenever he came out and kind of ripped the Eagles a new one over it. I've got newfound respect for Joe Judge, that's for sure. 
Absolutely. I was thinking to myself, that's my head coach. And it's funny enough, Joe Judge actually grew up an Eagles fan. So I'm sure he's uh, went ahead and burned all his Brian Dawkins gear <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. But definitely disappointing. But I'm not surprised with those no good Eagles. Well, you know, I think Joe Judge was going to be the Mississippi State coach. He had basically agreed to be the Mississippi State coach. That's why we got rid of, of Moorhead. If we thought we had Joe Judge, he never expected to get the Giants coaching job. And then all of a sudden, the Giants hired him out from under us, and obviously, who could blame him for that? And we ended up getting stuck, and we got Mike Leach, which is going to be interesting. I go from liking him to hating him all in the same ball game. So, you know, we ended up at least getting a personality out of it, but I think we'd have been a lot better off if we had got Joe Judge. He would have fit with what we were trying to do. I think the Saints are going to win Sunday, but right now, we may miss all our running backs. Kamara might can play. Is he going to be able to play? Well, they'll be able to play. The NFL moved the game to Sunday, and if the game was Saturday, none of them would be able to play. So the NFL finally gave the Saints a break. They have a long history of screwing the Saints over. So this was one where the scheduling's worked out. So their 10-day or quarantine or whatever will be up at midnight Saturday so they can play on Sunday. Well, that's good. They, find, they always that after these pass interference penalties have been called. Absolutely. And it's crazy. I just saw in The Athletic that the Browns coaches – out due to COVID. So I think their special teams coordinator is going to coach the team in the playoffs. It's not a Cleveland Browns thing to happen, don't you guys think? I hadn't seen that yet. Yeah, Kevin Stefanski is out this week. You know, that guy's done a good job at Cleveland. Anybody can go to the playoffs up there. It must be a good coach. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, enjoy the NFL playoffs. Have a great 2021, and we'll look forward to our simulcast. Yeah, thank Bye. you so much. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. Guys.